0: You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Today, we're running audio from the fourth episode of our webcast series, Ask Strong Towns. This is your chance to ask your burning questions about our vision for change and how the Strong Towns approach might apply in your unique place. The webcast is open to all Strong Towns members, and you can find more information by visiting the Ask Strong Towns page on our website. I've got a link to that in the show notes. In today's episode, Chuck and Kia discussed several audience submitted questions on everything from parking minimums to density to how young people can help build strong towns. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that you'll join us on the next live webcast on August 6th if you want to get your question answered. Become a member today to receive your invite. Okay, now on to this Ask Strong Towns conversation with Chuck Marone and Kia Wilson.
2: Hi, everyone. This is Kia from Strong Towns here with my friend and colleague, Chuck Marone. And I'm coming at you a little bit sick today. I promise I'm not just trying to sound cool with my voice. And Chuck has it coming on, too. Apparently, even when you run a virtual workplace, you can still have a workplace. Yeah,
0: I don't know how that that happens. But uh, for me, it's the the nine-year-old sharing uh, with her friends and then with me. And
2: for me, it's, I was in an airport last week. So this is what always happens to me. But yeah, I'm really know. excited to be here for Astron Towns.
0: I traveled all winter and didn't really get it. And it's, it is funny because airplanes and airports do it. And for some reason, I had a really good, you know, really good stretch there. Um, but the kids, I mean, I'm coaching this softball team full of, um, you know, eight, nine, and 10 year old girls. And that means like a lot of hugs. And a lot of, uh, you know, just like closeness. So who knows? I mean, maybe that's part of the deal, too, but... Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, for those of you watching live at home, it probably couldn't hurt to be wearing some sort of a SARS mask right now. <laughs> um, otherwise, we're just excited to get started. This is Ask Strong Towns Volume 5, I believe, is cool. the time we've done this. And um, for those of you who are new to it, the way this works is pretty simple. We've got a bunch of pre-submitted questions locked and loaded, ready to go. And you are also welcome to submit your questions live via that Q&A button that should be, I believe, to the right of your screen, maybe to the bottom depends on your browser setup Um, please do not submit questions through the chat function that is just for you guys to talk about how great Chuck and I look amongst one one another and the Q&A is where you will actually be looking for your live questions we've got about an hour today so I would love to just go ahead and dive in if you are kick-started and ready Chuck
0: I am my favorite kind is the (laughs) energizing mango lime so I hope it never goes away
2: Yeah, nature's favorite (laughs) fruit, the mango lime. All right, so we're going to start off with a question that was submitted to me actually via email by Eric Carr that I think is just a classic Strong Towns question. What are some of the arguments you've heard over the years for parking minimums, i.e. leaving things the way that we've always done it in North American cities, rather than moving towards a parking maximum model? If I'm going in front of elected officials to lobby for a change, what arguments should I anticipate and how should
0: i answer them is that's a great question i I think the number one the number one argument is that if we don't do this we won't have enough parking and i think we have to recognize right off the bat that that is an argument of emotion and an argument of perception not an argument of reality and, and data this is the, when you get into the parking issue, it's so fascinating because at at the very local level, there's there, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to paint with a broad brush here, but I've been in so many of these meetings and I've seen this play out over and over again. There's always, and we can think of like the stodgy old person who's been there forever. Who's like, you know, show me the budget, show me the bottom line. I don't want, you know, this and that. And then when you bring up parking, they're like, there won't be enough parking. And, it goes from being a very, like, I am using, you know, give me the bottom line, give me the numbers, give me the facts kind of argument to, like, I don't really care about any of that. I'm just going to go off whatever. And, and what you have to recognize is that both of those are actually emotional arguments. Both of them are neither interested in, in facts or data. They're both, like, emotional arguments. Sure. Um, so I think what you have to do when you're trying to deal with the parking one and and the other one Uh, But the parking one in particular, you've got to kind of understand the underlying emotion. And it is one of, you know, when I, in my life, when I drive here, I want to have a certain level of convenience and I have a certain expectation. And if that expectation is not met, my own personal perception is that this doesn't work. And and not only my own personal perception, but the people who I'm in like a, a circle with, also feel that way. The only way to deal with that kind of an emotional reaction um, is to—I uh, I don't think there is an argument that you can make. Like they're—they're they're not going to respond to data. They're not going to respond to numbers. They're not going to respond to that. What they're going to respond to is, in a sense, empathy. First of all, like, okay, I understand um, when you—you know—shop there. And then I think to kind of help them think through their own emotional reaction, Um, you know, I'll give you some things that have worked with my city council in particular. Um, We're worried there's not going to be enough parking. Yes, I agree with you. I have that same concern. Uh, Let's, um, you know, talk about what that would look like if there isn't enough parking, if there isn't enough parking right here on this block, what would happen? Well, you'd have to park a block away. Okay, is that a nightmare? Is that a disaster? How, how could we make that that walk from where you have to park to where you're trying to go easier and more convenient? Look, that distance that you're walking there is actually less than what you'll walk when you park in two-thirds of the way back in the Walmart parking lot into the store. So we can start to deal with the emotion of it by, I think, empathizing uh, with their, you know, get, get their kind of concern, like, dig deeper into it and get it out on the table and then, um, you know, try to kind of talk through it in almost like a psychologist kind of way. Um, it, it, parking is so irrational. Um, like it, like people do it. It it is a hundred percent emotion. Let me just give you the one other thing that I've dealt with in my community here. And that is just creating coalitions of people who talk about parking differently. The more we can get, uh, and, and this sounds like more of a divisive strategy, and I, I don't mean it that way, because again, mm-hmm. you're dealing with emotion. And one of the ways to deal with, uh, if you get, I'm, gonna, I'm trying not to get too deep into psychology here, you get a pocket of emotion, like an echo chamber of emotion here that kind of feeds on itself. And one of the ways to deal with that is to actually get people in that group who expand the normal conversation. So if everybody in the group is saying, there's not enough parking, there's not enough parking, and it's just like the, the, you know, the mantra, to get people in that conversation to say, you know, I park two blocks away and it's just fine. Or I live six blocks away and I walk there all the time. I uh, attend these things and I don't take my car or I don't do this. To have more people who are able to testify in that way, it diffuses the emotion in a way that's saying, well, we have you know, 40% of our parking spots at any one time that are unoccupied. And here's a map that we did and a study that we did. And those things are maybe helpful, but I actually think having the people stand up and testify like I go downtown all the time and there's never a parking shortage if there is a parking shortage, I park here where there's a huge lot and it's a block away and it's really easy to get to. If you can have people who can testify like that, what it does is it, it opens up that emotional context in which the conversation is taking place. And I think it makes it a lot more rational. Kia, I don't know if you have a thought along those lines. Yeah,
2: uh, I- I do, and I would add a couple of things to what you said. Um, so the question asked about arguments against, but I would also say that sometimes it helps to stage an event that actually demonstrates in real time what a specific city or street would look like if you took a couple of parking spaces away. You can do that through participating in National Parking Day. There's a parentheses around the ing <laughs> um, where you convert some parking spaces into um, parklets for the day. and um, you know, make sure that it's engaging and fun for the entire community, but demonstrate what actually happens and ask, you know, for instance, the local store owners, one of the most common complaints that I hear when parking is being taken away is it's going to kill my business. My customers won't have anywhere to park and my store will close. Um, Actually ask them what their receipts for the day look like in response to that. You can host an open streets event. I'm working on a post right now about an open streets event that I helped plan here in St. Louis and the effect it had. Or if you're not able to um, mount a full-scale event, take advantage of the um, events in your community where parking is closed off anyway. The vast majority of cities are going to have some sort of city festival where they line up some sort of, you know, like fairground attractions or, you know, St. Louis, we have a literary festival right outside of the bookstore where I used to work for many years. What would happen if I Um, during that day, went to the bookstore owners and said, hey, would you just give me some sort of rough stats and figures for how your walk-in traffic was affected by closing down your streets to cars for a certain amount of time or closing off some parking spaces. Operate on um, the principle of an experiment and show in real numbers what effect it actually has. You're right, Chuck, that it's an emotional argument and numbers won't cut through every emotion, but sometimes um, a demonstration will.
0: I do think that when you can lower the stakes, you can get past the emotion a little bit. I think when you open up the conversation, we've got a, a, a music store in downtown Brainerd, and they have told me, our, our people who come here are coming from a broad region. They're not like local traffic. So if you get people who can walk here from you know, six blocks away, that doesn't do us much good because most of our people are coming in. So we talked about that. And I said, well, how are those people shopping? Well, they come in and they're in for five minutes or 10 minutes and then they leave. Well, OK, well, that's a thing where we can put a five minute, a, a, a 15 minute parking space in front of your store. You know, there, there's things we can do to have the, the turnover of traffic and address those issues. I, I guess I, I see a lot of times parking advocates trying to use studies and data and throw that at people. And it doesn't, I, in my opinion, it doesn't work. It's a good supporting thing to do. Um, but you've got to empathize and get to the actual emotion right. of what's driving people. Uh, otherwise, you're, you're not going to get them to open up their mind at all about it.
2: I totally agree. So we're going to go to a live question now from Stephen Jacques, um, whose name I'm probably mispronouncing because it is French. <laughs> so Stephen asks um, about... Basically, I'm going I'm to reinterpret his question a little bit to say that we live in a very hyper-modern age where a lot of our land is already developed. The land is claimed, we have buildings on it, and most of the parcels are bigger than the space that is actually needed for an incremental fine grain building. Understandably, developers try to fit as much as they are allowed to fit on a single parcel, which results in larger projects. Big bets, so superblocks, and fine grain and faux fine grain buildings. He's talking about mixed use development, quote unquote, where you slap a uh, like retail space on the lower floor and some apartments above it, but it's not actually a fine grain development pattern. If a city has large green or gray field lots, what can it do to promote fine grain development in those places?
0: I saw, and I, I want to say it was Greensboro. Uh, North Carolina, but I'm, I'm not positive about that. I'd have to go back. Um, a place where they had just, it was a brownfield site and they had just exactly this. And the question was, we want one big developer to come in and, and do a master plan and do the whole thing or not. And and they realized in looking at that, that the goals they were trying to accomplish um, one of them could be handled with a big developer coming in and doing it, and that was the goal of getting growth and investment and what have you. But it would conflict with all the other goals they had as a community. Mm. Um, you know, ownership, uh, jobs, uh, making the neighborhood more productive, making it stable. It, 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 there were, you know, there were a whole bunch of other competing things. What they wound up doing is working with a master um, kind of developer in the sense of someone to help them plan it out. Uh, and go into this brownfield site and essentially replat it. Platting is just a technical term for how you, lo- you know, create the different lots that can have their ownership transferred. Um, but they, they platted it out as small individual lots, and then they <laughs> sold them as small individual lots. And they actually had requirements where you couldn't own or they wouldn't sell you in, in uh, contiguous lots Uh, if you were going to own a lot, it had to be like two lots over from one you had purchased. So they did have some developers come in and buy them, but they bought them in kind of disaggregated ways so that you did kind of impose on it uh, a small scale kind of fine grained approach. I thought that worked really well. And I thought that was a really brilliant way to do it. Here in Minnesota, we've got uh, down in St. Paul, we've got this former Ford site. Uh, It was a Ford production plant. And in the early days of looking, I mean, they've been looking to redevelop this thing for years and they're now ready to kind of go forward with a plan. Uh the plan itself is exactly as uh as was being described. Uh it is a kind of a big, you know, one developer come in and do the site. Uh I, I think I'm a little I get why uh, you know, a lot of people down in St. Paul are supporting it. I've got some qualms about it because Uh, I think it would have been better long term, a little more chaotic, a little more work, a little more effort, uh, maybe on the front end uh, to split it up into these much, much smaller fine grained properties and and sell them off individually. It's with the way that capital is structured in this country and the way that money flows both through the private sector through Wall Street and the public sector through Washington, D.C., it does kind of. You do. You are often forced to choose between fast and big, or slow and fine grained. Mm-hmm. And I, I think when we can frame it in that way, um, you you actually understand. Like the, you actually have a chance to have a discussion about the full range of what you're trying to do. Because oftentimes, what happens is the people involved in bringing these projects forward have a time frame where they want it quickly you know, they want a huge site developed in five years, or 10 years, as opposed to a generation or two. And, you know, that, I think recognizing that and recognizing the trade offs in that, you know, how you create things that are less resilient, more fragile when you grow, think about growing a plant. If you grow a plant, like slowly over time, it gets deep roots, it it, it it really gets a full structure. If you throw a bunch of fertilizer on it and make it grow really fast, it, you can get instant green, but it's not as hardy or resilient. It's the same thing with our neighborhoods. So I, I think having that conversation is a way to help people grasp that. You know we, we can replat these things. It's not a complicated thing to do. Um, we just gotta decide that we want that fine grain model as opposed to the, the, the big.
2: Thank you so much. That's a great answer. So I'm going to go to a question um, that was actually submitted a while ago from Paul Quarter. I've been keeping it on ice since then because I think it's a really important question that we deal with a lot at Strong Towns. Um, and the essence of the question is just how do you get people to stop talking about density as a silver bullet? So Paul lives in Lebanon, Tennessee, and he has been working. Yeah, I know with the, Paul. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Well, he's been working with the Fate Texas method of analyzing development projects, which um, is based loosely on some uh, articles that you wrote, Chuck, which suggests creating a ratio between the private building costs that private citizens take on to the public infrastructure costs that the city city builds to support it. Um, Paul is finding that when he talks about this method, people respond, so it's really just about density. How have you been able to shift the conversation towards adding value in development like mixed use, multi-story, less parking, infill development, etc., and away from we just need to pack as many people as we can into a given space? And all our problems will go away,
0: right? Um, that's a that's a hard one, and it's a hard one because, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make an assumption, and then I'll I'll I'll, I'll try to answer this without the assumption. Okay. The assumption that I have, listening to Paul's question and knowing him a little bit, is that he's actually talking with policy people, um, you know, people who are trying to implement this stuff in the trenches, you know, or or are uh, kind of part of the intellectual group that likes to talk about policy. Uh, I am that in this city, so I'm not putting you down. I'm on the planning commission. So we talk about policy all the time. Uh, I, the one characteristic about policy people, and I think this is kind of a hard thing for us at, as strong towns advocates to deal with is that when we bring forward something, they want a solution. They want like an answer. So, okay, you're pointing this out. Uh, the answer is density. Like, let's do that. And it's like, what, what is the answer? What is the answer? And in complex systems, uh, which cities are complex adaptive systems, and by a complex system, I mean that it's a collection not of things that are discrete and function the way that, that they're intended. They're a, a collection of individual actors and individual players and individual subsystems, all of which react to each other and interact with each other. Um, the way that i 've described it here is like it 's a difference between a, a watch and you know a forest if you If you tweak one of the little you know uh, rotors on a watch, it will affect the whole watch, but in a very like clear kind of way, you can take one out and replace it with another, and it just works. A forest is this complicated ecosystem where if a tree falls down, things grow up, and it might work out different one time than another because of you know, the way the sun was on a certain day. There's all these different factors. So we have to kind of uh, resist the notion to make everything like, like a watch, like this stops working, so just replace it with this likewise part, assuming that it's going to function that way. Density tends to be that thing. And it's that thing for policymakers because it's like, okay, I see problem, here's a solution, density. To me, the only way that I've found to address that, particularly in the context of the private-public investment ratio, which is what he was talking about with fate, how much private investment you have as a ratio to public investment, is to start with people recognizing that the public investment part can change. Um, and, and this is uncomfortable for people, but oftentimes these policy people will start with, well, here's the road we have, here's the, you know, here's the street we have, here's the pipe we have, here's the sidewalk we have, thus we need density. Density is the answer. And I think part of the answer also could be, or, or a way to have this conversation is, you know what, um, that street could become a gravel street. Um, this area could become, you know, when this water system goes bad here, we may have to evolve to a, a localized system uh, or an individual system because there just isn't enough, like, stuff here to support this. So the answer, uh, ha- what, we, what I think our approach has to be is to take the, the, the block answers always, the people who say, well, A equals, you know, if A, then do B, if B, then do C, and say, nope, we need to actually broaden up this conversation. We need to expand it out and look. There's multiple ways to look at this thing. There's multiple ways this could happen. There's multiple ways this could change and develop. What we need to do is take incremental steps to see what emerges from this. And what emerges in some places might if, if you're obsessed about density, measure out to be a lot of density. What merges in other places might not be dense. It might be a restoration of a farm field or a forest. Mm-hmm. It might be just a, a, a lowering down to a lower state of intensity. I think we have to be open to that. And I think when policy people want to make the, that leap, what, what our gut reaction should be is broaden the, the conversation because they're, they're thinking too myopically. Now for non for non policy people, like if you're out talking to your your mom or your dad or your friend up the street and you're just having this conversation, they're like, oh, it's just about density. I think you can get I think you can start talking about complexity in cities and, and how they grow and evolve and change and how when we get central when we when we give like centralized authorities the, the density metric, they can meet that metric very easily if they're willing to sacrifice the livability of our cities, the walkability, the quality mm-hmm. of life, all these other things. And, and pretty much everybody outside of policy gets that. Like, th- this is why you have NIMBYs, because when people come and try to shove density down your throat, you're like, I saw when you did that over there, and it didn't, it didn't work out the way you suggested that it should. So I feel like for non-policy people, it's easy. For policy people, broaden out the, the conversation.
2: That's super helpful. So let's go back to the live questions here. Jackson Bates has a question um, about how you help a community that you don't necessarily live in. So he says, I go to college a few hours from my home and my home is immediately outside of the principal city in my region. What can I do during my college years to stay involved in the city, not the suburb I'm assuming that he lives in um that I don't live in at all during the year but that I intend to move into after I've been launched into my career
0: you take that one I mean I have a lot of
2: thoughts on this I know you do like I I,
0: (laughs) I'm I'm maybe not the best person because like I I grew up here um this is kind of like a sad story in many ways like I hope my kids don't repeat this but I mean (laughs) I grew up here. I grew up on the farm that was homesteaded by my great, great grandparents. Uh, I went away for three years to get a civil engineering degree. I came back. I started working here. I worked for five years. I went back for a graduate degree for two years, but I actually rented out my house here and then that didn't work out. So I kept it and I would come up and stay here two or three days a week while I was working in the area. I've never, as pathetic as this sometimes sounds to me, like I've I've never really lived anywhere but here. So I, I don't, I don't know, like I, I don't have experience and I don't really have a lot of, uh, like deep insight as to why that would be. I am I'm, I'm a, sometimes I'm embarrassed by it. Cause I'm like, I should have left. I should have gone away. I should have gone away for like a long time. I probably would have a better relationship with this place. Had I done that? Um, but I didn't, so I'm. I'm. So I, I want to hear what you think because I think you probably have better insights <laughs> on this one than I do.
2: I mean, I, I definitely am not like broadcasting from the town where I grew up. I moved away for boarding school when I was 14 and kind of didn't go back very much, with the exception of visits. And I've moved a lot. I actually kind of want to answer this question with. Um, Another question, which is, why do you feel the need not to get involved in the city where you're in college currently? Um, I think that the city where you, the community that you are best equipped to be an advocate for, to be deeply involved in, is the one where you are getting feedback every single day from your surroundings, so that you, the streets you are walking on, the house you are living in, the, like, community institutions that you're frequenting and I know sometimes in a particularly a residential college and I went to college on the side of a mountain in Santa Fe New Mexico I completely understand you don't feel connected to that area um, with that said you should be connected to that area there is a reason why um, there are is such a focus on town-gown relations. Whenever they do a study of residential colleges, you have the ability to practice the skills of citizenry, of you know, why not plan a tactical urbanism demonstration on your campus? Why not venture out, gasp a few steps beyond the campus line, and get to know your local politicians. Register to vote in the city where you are currently living and participate in the mayoral elections, rather than mailing that absentee ballot back home, which I was an Ohio voter, and I understand the impulse to want to keep your registration in a swing state. just because you feel a little bit more important during those presidential election years. But really invest yourself in the place where you are now. Um, it will only serve you to practice those skills when you go back to that city. Um, you can still follow your local politicians. You can still advocate for your friends who are living in the city you'd like to um, be a part of. But in terms of the day-to-day work of being a strong towns advocate, focus on where you are. That's my best advice.
0: I, that's really interesting. I'm I'm not gonna say that I disagree with you. That's um, fine if you do. But I would never like I would never do that. And not mm. I mean it, I, I I think it's interesting because I mean obviously you you are a different person than we are. We have different approaches. I know that like when I lived in St. Paul, I I found St. Paul charming and I liked it. It was nice. But like my heart and soul was here. My passion was here. This is where sure. I wanted to move back and community I want to be part of. And I. I really found it hard to, uh, invest a lot. I mean, I was a respectful neighbor and I would have shown up for like a block party or whatever, but I would have been the guy like standing there. I wouldn't have been the person putting it together or seeing it through or volunteering my time. Um, that being said, like, I would do all that here. I would would definitely do that here. I would be that leader. I would be that person. And it's because this is where my, my heart is. Mm -hmm. I, I think having heard your answer, um, I think that that will work for a lot of people. Let me give an, let me give an alternate, like, again, theoretical answer, because this is not, I, I, for me, I felt like those years away, uh, for me, uh, were a good opportunity to become like a better person. And I kind of think like, that's what university is about anyway, is becoming like a better person. I, I, I went away in the army for a while. Um, when I came back, I was more equipped at life. I was, I was more equipped to be of service to the people around me. Um, I was a better person. So I, I do think that there's something to be said. Like I, I wanna keep in touch, I'm gone. Uh, things don't seem to be going well. I wish I could change them. How do I do that from afar? Sometimes you just gotta like hunker down and do the work in front of you and become the person that you needed to be so that someday you can return in a in a Homer esque kind of way and uh, be the person that you're called to be, and I, I think that's okay too. You know, I, I'm I, I think that uh, you know having that having that perspective is is healthy.
2: You can do a little bit of both. I like the Odysseus yeah. analogy, so now I'm on board. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go. I'm going to go back to Juan Cruz, um, who's currently living in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, he had a question about specifically the cultural innovation district in New Orleans, and more specific, or more generally, what do we think of cultural districts in major cities? It's a big trend. Um, are we for? Are we against? How did this this sort of thinking jive with strong
0: towns thinking uh, how uh, here's here's like my my question and i i guess for me like i've seen people put labels cultural districts on things and, and i i think that we maybe don't uh don't have a clear sense of what we're trying to accomplish with that like i like what okay. I, have you run into this kia where you've like okay so I've seen like uh, in, um, in Dallas, in the Dallas neighborhood, they've got the Bishop arts district, which I think is like a cultural, I think you'd call like one of these, a cultural district. Um, You know, really what you did is you took a neighborhood that was kind of funky, but was kind of down on its luck. They gave it internally. I mean, these are the people in the district. They gave it their own kind of brand and their own identity. And they said, we care about this place. I find that to be really cool. Um, I find that to be really awesome. Um, we can go to Omaha where they've designated something, like they said, here's an area town and we're just gonna take a magic marker and draw around it. This is our entertainment district. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this district, we will have you know entertainment. And by all Outward's appearances and by some inward you know, testimonial that I've, I've gotten, Uh, firsthand it's not been a success it's it's struggled to do the things that people wanted to do Um, for me all of these things get into this kind of push pull top down bottom up organic you know kind of thing I think that when we go in and say boy the city next door has a entertainment district and wouldn't it be great if we had that or the place next door has a you know, arts thing, wouldn't it be great if we had that? And then you go and you impose it. It, it, it. it tends to not work. It tends to not be the thing you wanted it to be. When we go out there and we kind of humbly look at what's going on and identify actual tangible strengths and build on them and help people kind of emerge out of that, uh, I think it works a lot better. We, we here in town have an old middle school that the school district abandoned years ago and the idea was, let's convert it into an art center. Mm-hmm. And we'll have an arts area in town. Um, a dec- We're a decade later. It is just starting to, I would say the last like two years, maybe, and it's just in its infant phase, it's just starting to get a little bit of an art funky vibe. It's been, and I don't want to offend any of my neighbors or anything, but it's been a bunch of like old ladies with quilting, you know, like... <laughs> The guy out on the lake uh, who's got the like the multi million dollar house whose wife likes to quilt would like rent a space so she could have her quilting stuff there instead of in the garage. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's been a lot of that, which is fine. Like I don't have a problem with those people; they're very nice, kind people. But it's not like you have some you know artistic district like rising up out of it. It was imposed and it wasn't natural. It's finally starting to become a little bit natural. And uh, there's a little bit of like funkiness starting to spill out a tiny little bit. I think we would have been much better served had we started with like what's going on in this neighborhood and how do we build off of that? And how do we like organically graft onto what's there as opposed to impose something from the outside? Does that make sense? Do you think I've answered the question?
2: I think it makes total sense. And I think we all have examples in our lives of, um, cultural districts that were sort of tried to be zoned into existence um, versus cultural districts that appeared organically because artists are members of a community like everyone else. And they talk to one another and they say, Hey, there's some cheap real estate opening up right next to me. And maybe you should open an art gallery and so on and so forth over generations. You get Canyon road in Santa Fe, one of like the densest art block of art galleries in the country. Um, I think that makes complete sense and there's it's hard to distinguish between like a build-it-and-they-will-come cultural innovation district and recognizing what's already there in your city and like adding some fuel to the fire i think the latter is more in line with strong towns thinking
0: um and and we can go i mean we can go to places around this is i think the danger by the way we can go to places around the country i'll i'll say west palm beach to begin with hmm. I was there a few months back you can go to west palm beach and you can see parts of town where they have a sense like imposed a development pattern with large money and outside capital and said you know here's gonna be like our funky bar you know whatever district, yeah. and it's nice i mean it it, it works and it's nice it's nice in like a, and I'm going to say this, and you know that I don't mean this in a derogatory way. It's sure. nice in like a downtown Disney kind of way, right? Like yeah, You I enjoy, love downtown
2: Disney, so that's I, the opposite of derogatory. Yeah, I
0: like downtown <laughs> yeah. Disney. But no one's going to suggest that. I mean, the reason why downtown Disney can be what it is is because when something becomes slightly passe, mm-hmm. they can pour tons of capital into it to change it around. They can do all kinds of like crazy things that we can't do in our cities. Um, you know, because it's a theme park, because it's an entertainment place, because there's millions of people that go through there every year. Um, In West Palm Beach, you've got this one kind of manufactured place that works because it's brand new and they've made it like really high end to begin with. And I think a lot of times people will go through a place like West Palm Beach and see that and go, we need to create that. What do they do to to create that? And then they'll want to pour in like that capital and redo that. If you go just a few blocks over in West Palm Beach, you get into these very natural, um, you know, very much more organic kind of fine grain places that they've also uh, done things like gotten rid of the one way streets, put a little bit more street friction in there, uh, done a little bit with paint and benches and, and some stuff on the street to try to make it work. Those places are delightful too. They're delightful in a slightly different way Um, But they're delightful. And when I go there, those places feel, uh, even though I think like in a Joe Minicozzi standpoint, the two are probably very equivalent in measurement. Like they would both probably pencil out really well financially. Um, The stuff that is more uh, native and organic and authentic feels to me like a lot stabler, a lot more resilient, a lot more, uh, has deeper roots into the community. And, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I think if you went to West Palm Beach and just spent time in that manufactured area and then went home and said, we need to create this, you'd have uh, a hit or miss proposition that would be really risky. If you went to the other block and said, well, how do they get this? Well, they got this one like slowly, organically over time. It emerged from them. It's actually like part of them and it's not going away. And if you tried this, you might get something like this or you might get something like authentic to you, which is probably going to be better anyway.
2: Yeah. I like that. You should all grow some cultural districts now. Grow some um,
0: cultural districts.
2: Do it. Don't,
0: don't impose them. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Um, so I'm going to go back to the live questions now, but I also want to pause and say we could use some more live questions. We've got a few on the queue right now that are not in the form of questions. So I appreciate your thoughts and reading <laughs> them. I love them. I can't just say them. Um, so hang some question marks on there. Keep them brief so that um, they are relevant to lots of places around the country. And keep them coming. But now let's turn to Joel Dixon, who always has great questions during these. As a youngish engineer who subscribes to Strong Town's ideas and wants to make a difference in his hometown, would you, Chuck, recommend that I pursue a planning degree in addition to my civil engineering degree, especially if I have a chance to work in city government? I think you are uniquely equipped to answer this question since you did this. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's it's hard to I mean, in an Asim Taleb kind of way, it's one of those things where, you know, look at what I do, not what I say, as like the prime thing. So like, you know, if if clearly like that's what I did. I worked as an engineer. I was frustrated with my both capacity to do. the the stuff I wanted to do and also my lack of understanding of the broader world. I mean, I knew I was, I was doing a lot of planning work as an engineer and I knew I was a bad planner. So I said, I'm going to go get a planning degree and become a good planner. Um, The interesting thing, and I say this in theory, um, no one has a chance to redo life, right? Like I can't go back and be 18 again and go on a college degree path. I find it very unlikely if I did that. And I think probably most people who are 45 would say this, I find it unlikely that I would go into civil engineering and I find it unlikely that I would go into planning. I just, I, I don't, I, I, I don't look at either of those as like the professions that are shaping the world today. um, particularly the planning profession. I'll give you, I'll give you this. And and I think if I went back to when I was 25 as an engineer, would I go back to planning school? I, I think probably yes. And I'll tell you why. Planning school did two things for me. And this might it might be because I'm a product. I graduated from high school in 91, so I'm a product of like a certain era. But planning school, that might not exist today, but planning school did two things for me. One, it did open my mind to a lot of things that as an engineer through my engineering school and training, I did not get. Um, I've told this story before, but I think it's really uh, apropos. I was sitting in a, in a transit class And the professor, it was the first day of this class, and it was like my first day at graduate school, and the professor in the class stood up and he said, okay, um, there's two kinds of street networks, the curvilinear street network and the grid street network. One of them is far superior for moving vehicles and moving traffic and moving people. Uh, which one is it? Obviously, come on. And this was like it was like a no-brainer question. And I'm like, I know the answer to this. I've spent the last five years building curvilinear streets. I know what it is. And I raise my hand like I'm going to answer this one because I'm like a great you know student here. And someone said you know the grid. And he's like, of course. And he just moves on. And I'm like, w- wait a sec. <laughs> like you've got to be joking me. I knew the answer. Like like confidently, it wasn't the answer what the hell you know so to me grad school did take this kind of neophyte engineer who had been in this bubble and really exposed me to like a ton of ideas that i i didn't have that was the part for me i think you can get that in other ways besides engineering school i mean i hope if you're hanging out with us here at strong downs you're getting that without needing to get a planning degree you know but the planning degree will help here's what the planning degree did that was most important The plan degree gave me credibility and also uh, um, an opening to be a radical in both professions. Mm -hmm. So it gave me, I could go talk to planners and not fit in with planners. And they respected it because I was also an engineer. So the things that I was saying were maybe radical and challenging to them. But they respected it because they said, well, he has, he has like Zen knowledge that comes from somewhere else that we don't have. So we have to hmm. listen to that. If I had just been a planner and coming into that, they'd be like, what, who do you think you are? Like, what are you talking about? You don't know anything that we don't know. Conversely, you know, as an engineer, when I went and talked to engineers, they would say, oh, you know, you're saying things that we understand, but you're saying this crazy radical stuff too. That must come from the planning part <laughs> you because you have a PE degree. <laughs> But, you know, so what, what it did is it opened up the ability for me to um, express a broader range of things that were unacceptable to kind of both professions in a way that just wasn't instantly alienating to them because I was this kind of weird uh, anomaly. Um, it's, it's, uh, I think that I have benefited from that enormously, if I'm, if I'm honest with myself, and so, I'm not going to tell someone not to do it. I'm just very, like, I'm very negative about the planning profession right now today. I think we need great planners. I think we need great people doing great things. I think a crossover engineer planner with a strong town's emphasis would be a, a brilliant person to be out doing work. Um, I'm just a, very much of the mindset that the salute. The planning profession as a profession is going to be drug, you know, dragged kicking and screaming mm. into the world that we need to get. And it's largely because you don't get a planning degree unless you think you know the answers. Yeah. And, and the, sure. world, the world we're entering into is one where we have to actually acknowledge that we don't know the answers. And I think that's the hardest like, mental thing that planners have. Does that make – you're giving me the confused look.
2: Yeah. No, I'm fascinated because um, as a non-design professional, I'm still sort of sussing out the difference between planning and engineering. And, like, culturally, I know the difference between the two positions. So it's very interesting to hear your take on it. I don't think we've ever talked about your sort of double agent status before.
0: Well, it's it's funny because – well, we did have – I mean, there were a lot of women in engineering school when I was in. Today, there's a lot of women in engineering school right. um, because of the emphasis in STEM kind of all the way through. Um, but even back in 1995 when I graduated, we had, we had a number of women in our class, but it was still 80%, 85% male. Sure. And I think a lot of the reason was because when you're an engineer um, – the job skills that you have are not necessarily people skills. They're, they're, they're mm-hmm. dealing largely with things and objects. And a lot of women find that very challenging, um, or find that very interesting work to do. But a lot of men, like in a in a skill set kind of sense, it is one of these skill sets that you know if you're not. I, I'm trying to think of how like uh, Kahneman describes it from a psychology standpoint. Uh, or I was just listening to this Malcolm Gladwell podcast, and he was talking about agreeableness. And uh, engineers tend to be very um, low on the agreeableness realm. They tend to be high in disagreeableness. And it's not that you're, like, unlikable or, or, you know, like, personally disagreeable, but you're willing to, like, this is what is you know one plus one equals two, and you will never right. convince me, even if I don't get along with you, that it's not. Like I will stick not to that relativist. time exactly. Yeah. Right. And, and and men, you know, in a in a kind of broad kind of way, uh, you know, especially at the at the kind of ends of the distribution, um, men tend to like gravitate towards that. There's a lot of women in my classes, but it was uh, it was it was very different in planning school. I was with like all women. It was it was a very female. I mean, I had a few hmm. men, um, but like everybody, I hired because I hired a bunch of my classmates to help me run my planning company. In the early, they were all women, and they were genius because uh, they had like wicked communication skills that I did not have. They they saw the world in a way that was very unique, and uh, you know, obviously, there's a lot of crossover here, and it's I'm I'm you know suggesting. Uh, stuff that, uh, you know, has, a, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to like pigeonhole anybody. Um, but I think the interesting thing about that dual planning engineering is if you want to work in the engineering world, you have to be able to get down into the weeds and focus on objects in a way that for, for, for people who are, you know, high in agreeability is really hard to do. Because it becomes very rational and and not very like abstract, and I can't the word you just used, in you describing not,
2: not relativist.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. It is yeah. the opposite of relative. Right. Is, right. Everything is very discrete. In the planning mm-hmm. world, it becomes the exact opposite. Everything mm-hmm. relative, and everything has squishiness to it. And there's very mm-hmm. few instances where one plus one equals two. And I I, I think the the interesting thing about having the crossover is that you have to be comfortable working in both places and it creates a lot of um internal tension. Uh you know, I, I know a few people that have done this and it does create a lot of internal tension because the one side can be so rational and the other side can be so abstract. And you're almost like this weird interpreter between the two. Uh it's almost like, you know, talking to to two different cultures that don't get along inherently not because they hate each other but because they're just so different um i feel like engineers and engineering school is becoming and this might this this i'm gonna say this and tell me if i'm being an idiot but i feel like the introduction of the emphasis on more women in stem and having more women in engineering school has actually improved in many ways, the kind of breadth of of, of education that we're getting in, edu- in engineering schools now. I think that it's less likely that engineers graduate today without being able to talk to people, <laughs> right? right? Looking <laughs> in the eye, be coherent. <laughs> you know, like I, like the young civil engineers that are coming out generally are fairly like dynamic people, men and women alike. Right. And I think it's because of that kind of... You can't pigeonhole yourself into an engineering world where you just deal with objects and rational. You've got to experience a broader world, and that's good. I think on the other side with planners, I'm still seeing the same kind of irrational, not in touch with reality, very like abstract, not able to get things done kind Mm -hmm. of um, planner come out. And the way that the rational manifests is the way that I talked about earlier, which is, Oh, they build a streetscape. Let's build a streetscape. Or they did this. Let's do this. Um, it's it's very much like oh, they did this. It must be density. Let's zone for density, and it's not um, it's not manifesting in I think a very mature way in that mm-hmm. profession yet. And I would I would love it to. I, I I'm not sure how to fix that. So maybe maybe the answer is you only put engineers in the planning school and have them broaden their their category uh, or you put you know planners through some engineering work i just i think that the gra- the graft from the engineer over is easier than the opposite i guess mm-hmm. is what i'm saying That's does that make sense did i just take us on like this bizarre
2: <laughs> no i like the tangent and i think it's a good segue into our next question a little bit which also has to do with how uh, groups cross-pollinate and sometimes come into conflict so Marian mcqueen from Yellow Springs, Ohio, asked um, this question, which I think is a perennially important question. People in our small town tend to be very engaged and hold strong opinions. Big community issues can turn (laughs) nasty, especially now with social media. Any suggestions on how to engage in civil discourse without personal attacks? So this is like, let's heal all the nation's ills right now. (laughs) Um, But uh, I think this is something that's on my mind a lot. um, And I would love to hear your thoughts on it too.
0: Let me give you two quick takes, and then I let you, then you need to elaborate yeah. um, in that in that question, you said big community issues, and i I, I do think I, I, I did I hear you correctly where you said yeah that 's what she wrote yeah, um, she might have meant that like they get blown out of proportion, or she might have meant uh, that they 're big um, I do think that the bigger we make something um, like the bigger things we try to do in proportion to where we're at today. In other words, let me say the opposite of this. The more we don't grow incrementally, the more we don't try Mm -hmm. things out on a small scale, um, the the bigger the stakes be and the crazier our dialogue gets. I mean, I I do think an antidote to craziness um, in our dialogue is to start doing small things. Um, You know, if you're going to work on the street four blocks over from me and do a little tiny thing to make it a little bit better... I may not like it. It may kind of bother me. I may be like the curmudgeon is like, don't put that bike lane in, but I'm not going to show up to a meeting and all right. this. I'm not going to create it because it's a little thing on a street way over there, right? I like, I, what is that? Now, if we do like the multi-million dollar project in my small town where we're going to do, then I'm going to show up and I'm going to raise cane. I'm going to be a thorn <laughs> side. I'm going to, you know. So working incrementally diffuses a little bit of that. I also think, and this draws off of, you know, the Jonathan Haidt stuff that, that we've looked at, that we've talked mm-hmm. about. Um, I'm becoming more and more convinced that as just a rule in life, and this is for me, um, and I, I, I'm going to internalize this myself because I struggle with this. So I'm, I'm not casting aspersions on other people. I'm not trying to be the saint here saying, you know, I don't do this. I think when we, Assume the motives of other people and the intentions of other people. Uh, we go down just crazy paths. We, we, we end up in really dysfunctional places. So when you say something to me and I assume a whole backstory and a whole rationale and I assume the way you said it and I hear it in the way that I believe, like I hear it with bad intentions, then I am going to react in a way that's unhealthy regardless of how you meant it. Yes. If I assume right off the bat that you know what you said uh, was you know was either meant with good intentions or maybe even that I misunderstood it, and I can get you into a dialogue where we're talking about it and you're explaining yourself more and and we're you know my first reaction is to ask you to talk more and to explain it more. Um, I think that both I, as someone who is receiving information from you and then reacting to it, and you as someone who is giving information to me can both lower the volume, lower the anxiety, and, 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 and have a better conversation. I think that in, I feel like if we're going to push back on the craziness that is our time, as a, as, a, as a movement, we have to all embody a sense of, we're going to assume from the outstart that the person we're talking to has good intentions, and we're going like, to work to find those and that is hard to do i had an instance i had an instance last week where someone was attacking and just came out attacking and like i i look back at my interaction and said if i had assumed a different set of understandings i could have gone a different way with this so go ahead yeah
2: no I, i i'm just gonna build on what you said a little bit um about assuming the best, and I want to add to that, I want to dig into this notion of what civil discourse is, right? When we talk about civility, what do we mean? Um, Because one thing that I've had to learn as an adult, and it's been challenging for me, frankly, is that um, just because someone is passionate, or they are expressing their opinion in a way that Um, culturally I did not see people civilly expressing their opinions that way doesn't mean they're not being civil they're not violating me they're not attacking me um I'm talking about everything from the volume of someone's voice to the language that they use to um you know, interpretation can really twist things around. So I want to encourage us to open up our notions of civility and honor the passion and the care at the center of what even people who we might initially have a knee-jerk reaction, saying like, you're being in civil, uncivil right now, um, maybe they are, in fact, revealing something that's very, very core to them. And they're revealing it in a way that we might not be used to, but we deserve to listen. We also deserve to be listened to. Civility is really, a, at its core, about an exchange of ideas, about giving other people their time, um, about recognizing, again, that what we might perceive as an attack is not necessarily an attack. And when it is, that there's a different process to go through with that. Um, so I just wanted to throw that on the pile. It's a little squishy to use your language from before, Chuck. Um, but I think it's, it's really vital that we remember that expressions of care can take a lot of different forms and they are not necessarily uncivil.
0: I I appreciate that. I I do think, and, and I think this is a, this is a really hard one because Mm -hmm. I have been, I've been a, I've been a bomb thrower in my community and I have a lot of people here who do not like me because they feel like I've spoken out of turn. I've said things, Mm -hmm. I pointed out things. I've been provocative in a way that has offended people. Um, I have gone to just, I I will say, and I'm again, I'm not perfect. I'm not holding myself up as an example or a model. Um, I do think when I've been at my best, uh, I have refrained from uh, demonizing, Uh, I've refrained from identifying specific people. So like I disagree with this policy or I disagree with this approach. It's never been like the mayor, this, this person, this, this person's evil. Like I, I've not gotten, I've not done that. And when I have gotten into individuals, I've always started off and you can go back and listen to the interview I did with my council member a couple of years ago, a guy named Gary Sheeler, who's no longer there. I did work to get him uh, unelected, uh, <laughs> uh, which I was successful at. Um, as part of a, a team, but if you listen to that, him and I disagreed vehemently on a lot of things, and I always started off our 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 one to one dialogue was saying, "I think we agree on this, yes, like let's agree on this, and then where do we take it from there?" I I, I do think that, I, and maybe I'm disagreeing with you gently. I do feel like okay. our our. <laughs> I'm not calling on people to be civil in the sense that, like, lower your tone and your volume and don't get upset and be calm. But I am calling on people to, when you talk to another person, when you are looking at them in the eye, I, I, I do think that we have to find a way to talk to each other. Um, and that can be passionate. That can have a lot of emotion to it. That can be, you know, I'm not suggesting that we need to find agreement, like we have to agree on everything. But I do think that uh, the closer we get to the block level, the closer we get to like the neighbors across the street level, you have to talk to them. You, you, you have to find a way to have a conversation with them because um, there's, there's no other way we can do this. And and that may mean, I, I will say that for my part, I'm kind of struggling with this now because we have a new city administrator trying to make change, trying to do things nice, trying to reach out to me, be friends. And I'm being friendly, like I'm going along and getting along with that disagreeability thing that I've got, uh, like keeps rearing its head because I, there's a lot of ways where I would rather be right than agreeable. And I'm trying to like, uh, on, a, on an individual level, I'm trying to suppress that as much as I can, because I think there's a lot to be gained on the individual level from being more agreeable and maybe even less right.
2: Mm-hmm. I like that. I'm um, hold you to that the next time we disagree. <laughs> it's good to be next. Less right, Chuck. <laughs> do we have time for one more or do we need to
0: Absolutely. No, I can okay. do. Uh, I've got an interview in a few minutes, but I'm good. Okay, I- cool.
2: You guys are going to get an extra long version then. Um, so Pam Zedek has a question for us, long time member. Our town is embarking on a large development project in the core of downtown, financed via tax increment financing, or TIF. The yeah. short explanation, <laughs> I know, like obviously that's a good thing, right? absent all other information. Mm-hmm. Um, the short explanation from the town council is that the tax revenue generated from the new project will be set aside to fund the project. Doesn't TIF equal debt? What questions would help enlighten our taxpayers? And we get a lot of questions about value capture financing, of which TIF is a subset. Um, We answered some of them last week. But I wanted to, uh, this is a big question in my community right now. So I wanted to say, how do we expand the public vocabulary around this town financing stuff?
0: Right. Same thing here. So let let me walk through Mm -hmm. what's going on here. I'm in the railroad yard, the old railroad yard at the Northern Pacific Um, About a mile that way is the Mississippi River. Um, You could hit a baseball across it. So just for reference, that's how far north we are. It's narrow. Uh, You go a couple hours north and you can walk across it, the Mississippi River. There's an initiative here in town they're calling River to Rails where they want to develop everything in between it. And the people are pushing this are the people who are saying we need to do, and I'm going to quote from Pam, a large development project in the core of downtown. And they want to finance it by value capture which chuck you're all about value capture why why don't you like this why isn't this great and their concept is like we need a parking ramp we need a hotel we need a museum we need a performing arts center we need like all this stuff so what we're going to go out and do is borrow all the money we're going to borrow this huge sum of money we're going to create this investment and then as the tax base grows we're going to use that new growth the taxes from that to pay back this investment okay the supporters are saying, uh, this is like paying for itself. So how can you be against this? We're not taking any risk. We're not doing anything. And I hear Pam saying, doesn't this equal debt? Yes, it is debt. It, th- this, this, is no different. this is basically your community working as like the development agency, taking on risk and debt at, with the hopes that uh, it will pay off. Um, with the backdrop being if it doesn't, like all the other taxpayers are on the hook. I'm like that's the that's the part of this that you know underlies it. For us, it's a it's a massive amount of debt we're looking at here. I mean, just like bizarre amounts of debt on a city that has like way too much debt. Let me give you another way of thinking about this, another way of doing this. And I'm gonna go to Burlington, uh, Virginia. Um, or I'm sorry, Burlington, Vermont. What am I talking that makes about? Burlington, sense. Vermont. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say Burlington, West Virginia, and then like it got mixed up. Burlington, Vermont. Burlington, Vermont has a, a, a downtown uh, business improvement district, which is basically, um, it's not exactly a TIF, but it operates in a lot of ways like a TIF. As the value grows in that area, the taxes from that area are captured and recirculated back into the downtown. Um, it's, it's, it's slightly different than a TIF, but in a lot of ways, it's, it's the same. Um, TIF works on the increment of growth. I'm getting too deep in the weeds here, but if if your value is here and then you add on and you grow your value to here, TIF will capture this tax increment. It will tax this. The business improvement district will tax the whole thing. It's semantics. It's money coming from the same people. What they've done in, in Burlington, Vermont, in their business improvement district, is they've taxed that area And they've used that money to put into a downtown improvement fund. And they use that downtown improvement fund to make incremental investments in improving the downtown. Um, So they do things like infrastructure and parking areas and all the stuff that we're trying to do with River and Rails. But they also do things like street festivals and hang up decorative lights and hang out Christmas trees and and lighting at holiday time. And they do things like this because what they found is that the, 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 the idea of creating like a vibrant place is not all about infrastructure and steel and concrete. It's about humans and people and getting businesses going. So they, they do some small business loans. They do facade improvements. They do all kinds of little things and they have been wildly successful in getting their downtown going by doing this in an incremental kind of way. The source of the money is the same. It's the, it's the people within it's the businesses and the landowners within this certain district. It's just the way they've gone about assembling it is way different. So, to me, when I hear you, Pam, describe the project in this way, when I hear the people in my community describing our project in this way, what I hear is the goal that we share. So we want the downtown to be great. We want the core to be good. We want it to be, great, but they want it now instantly in the form that they think it should take. And I want it incrementally over time in the form that it kind of grows into. Right. And, and, their approach is fragile and subject to, like, their error in vision. And the approach that we're advocating for uh, is strong and resilient and tied to the, the, the strength of the community. And that is a fundamental difference. Um, I don't think that TIF is bad, but when TIFF is the way, you know, just, like, automatically de facto bad, mm-hmm. but when TIF is a way to take on huge amounts of debt and finance it, I think that you've got a problem at both ends. You've got a problem at the way you're going about assembling things and the vision you've got and the way you're financing it and the long-term fragility impacts that that has.
2: Absolutely. Well, that's a bummer note to end on, but we should get going. I know you got another interview today. And I I want to say that we've got um, a good number of questions. You guys took me seriously when I said something more um, on deck. We do save all of the questions that we get during these sessions and keep them in the chamber for the future. We can't get through all of them, but um, there are lots and lots of ways to engage with Strong Towns. Join our Strong Towns Slack at strongtowns.org slash Slack. Start having these conversations conversations amongst yourselves. Join our local conversations page to gather your neighbors, get in the comments. There is no reason why your questions have to linger in purgatory until our next one next month. So thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Chuck, for um, chatting with me today. It was a pleasure. Have a great
0: um, uh, 4th of July, everybody.
2: Yeah, happy 4th, and uh, see you next time. Keep doing what you can to build strong hands. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt.
1: Bill, 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 Bill. That's story. Oh, they know that America's one
0: big
2: pothole right now.
0: Oh, la, la. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions.
1: Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating.